on this episode of Up the Mountain. Here I am trying to do what's right in life, trying to raise up these two boys. I'm trying to have a family. I'm trying to, you know, all this stuff. And here's the number one influence in my life. And you take him like, what in the world? I don't, I don't have a bearing anymore. I don't have a compass. This, this man was my, he was what I had to follow. Welcome to another edition of Up the Mountain Podcast. This is episode two. I'm your host, Ryan Ray. Thanks for tuning in again. Today, we have a special guest, a good friend of mine, Will Merritt. Uh, me and Will have been working together for many years. He's got a pretty interesting story, and I hope you enjoy it. Just a little background on Will. Will and his wife, Connie, are the parents of five kids. Will is a project manager at R Square Global and a board member at Geneva Academy Classical School in Monroe, Louisiana. He completed a Bachelor of Arts degree in Geography at the University of Central Arkansas while playing football there for four years. Now, let's get to the show. Will, thanks for being on the show today. How's it going, man? It's going well. How about yourself? I haven't seen you in a whole, what, five minutes? That's an exaggeration. That's an exaggeration. <laughs> for those of you who don't know, me and Will work together pretty regularly at R-Square Global, where Will is a project manager and has been here for how many years now, Will? Going on five. Going on five. And so the reason I wanted to bring Will on the show is, A, he's had a lot of interesting things happen in his life, and B, I think he uh, can relate to people in a lot of ways. He works hard at what he does. He's been uh, successful in the company. He's risen up through the ranks. And so... uh, Hopefully you'll have something for the audience today, Will. We'll give it a shot. So let's get started. Give the audience a background about who you are, kind of where you came from, uh, what your upbringing like. Okay. Um, kind of hard to pick where to start. I'm I'm the middle child of, of eight kids. There's five boys and three girls. And born and raised in Natchez, Mississippi. Uh, mom and dad divorced when I was about nine years old. It was... Uh, Kind of an ugly divorce, Um, but either way, the homes were split between Natchez and Vidalia, which is right on the Mississippi River, and my dad had been employed at um, International Paper Mill in Natchez, and the mill shut down in around 2003, so we had to, he took a new job in Bastrop, Louisiana at that mill. Um, I elected to stay in Natchez with my mom for about, uh, for my whole ninth grade year. And then um, I finally succumbed to the uh, pressure of moving back with my dad and my brother um, in Monroe. So I moved up here to Monroe in around 2004 and started attending Sterlington High School, where I eventually wound up um, being persuaded to play football uh, for my junior and senior year. From there, I um, was fortunate enough to get a, a full-ride scholarship to um central arkansas and i played there for four years uh i got a degree in a bachelor of arts of geography uh, specialized in gis and a minor in history i left there with all intentions of going to uh, seminary with a good friend of mine josh shelton and his wife and his new baby and my wife connie and our uh, newest baby hayes we were all uh, accepted into Southwestern Seminary in Dallas, and we were actually looking for a place to move when uh, the train came into my life. The train was uh, the event with my uh, two nephews, which in in the uh, lineup of my siblings, my next oldest um, sibling for me is my sister Brandy, and she fell into a, um, a bad state of affairs, and her children were kind of in jeopardy. And so I um, and my wife, we decided to take in the two boys. Uh, so that ended the, the, the pursuit at the current time to go to seminary, and we told Josh we'd have to hold off. And uh, I took the boys in, and uh, we bought a house in Sterlington, and that was the point that I merged in with uh, R-Square Global because I figured I would need a more um, consistent job than what I had at the time to help take care of three kids all of a sudden. And my wife, as things became more apparent with my sister's situation, this wasn't going to be a short-term visit from my nephews. 
and I've had them pretty much full-time ever since. And uh, we've added two more uh, babies to the family. So I have three girls, my wife and I. We have a 10-month-old, a 5-year-old, and a 3-year-old, and the two boys, which is Connor. He is 13, and Caden is 9. So you talk about a lot of things there. One of the things was divorce. You said you're the middle child of eight. Um, your parents lived about, was it two hours apart from each other? What was that like, going through the divorce and then having your siblings taken away from you? That was difficult. Um, at the time, you just do what you can as a 9- and 10-year-old boy to try to just make everybody happy. Um, as I look back through time, I kind of see things more clearly. And it, it just it was really difficult on all of us. And then the custody fight kind of came out of that. And it was just very uncomfortable to see mom and dad opposed to one another so strongly. And uh, it felt like us as kids, felt like we had to pick a side. Because honestly, my I don't believe that my uh, parents handled it with the children the way they should have. And so we felt pressured to pick a side. And eventually, after all that and the arrangements were made, um, we only lived about 45 minutes or probably 30 minutes apart. But that made for a difficult time for mom getting us to school on time and for dad being able to coordinate with our grandparents on this, that, and the other. And so there was always just, just tension in the air. And I think the way that we all coped with that was different. My oldest brother uh, handled it differently, uh, for example, than my little sister did. And it didn't cause us, like they do in the Hallmark movies, it didn't cause us to grow closer together. It caused us to more so seek out what worked for us best. And with my dad, we had a lot of leniency on when we had to be back in and who we hung out with and things like that. When on my mom's side, she was extremely strict. And that came across as uh, very legalistic, and it was hard to deal with that. So there's just a lot of pull on us in many di different directions. So in a way, while I still lived with my brothers and sisters, we were separated, and you know, mentally. Um, and it's and looking back, it's just how we dealt with it. It's just how we handled it, and it has affected every single one of us as we've grown into it. So you moved to high school, and for the audience, you're – that doesn't know you're six five. Yeah, he, um, he's a big fella. He's not a little guy like me. Yeah. So you're six five. You come into Strongton and you get recruited to play football for Strongton High School, um, but you didn't want to play. Um, why not? Well, um, Josh Shelton and I became Christians um, and got baptized in. I want to say it was two thousand and three at a revival meeting. Um, I came into Josh's house one evening and said, uh, I asked him, I said, what are we going to get into tonight or something like that? And uh, referring to sneaking out and grabbing, uh, you know, taking somebody's uh, beer or going to the store and me acting like I was older than I was because I was overgrown. Um, but he goes, man, I can't do that anymore. And I said, why? And he said, well, I went to church with my mom and I'm a Christian now. And I looked at him and I said, well, me too. <laughs> it was seriously that it was that quick, and, and that was it for us pretty much. And so we walked down a path of legalism in a way, and we went to uh, uh, we went back to high school. We didn't want to hang out with the same kids, and the football guys were the real rascals. You know, they were the ones that were going out and drinking and carrying on and all about the pride and all these things. And, and, and we looked, and I said we. I looked at them with a side glance, and I won't be like those guys. Well, when I went to Sterlington, I – walked in assuming the same thing of that those football players and whether I was wrong or not didn't matter that that was what my mindset was and the head coach who is a, was at the time was a deacon at First Baptist uh, Church in Sterlington came to me and after many people had solicited me to play he goes hmm maybe the Lord gave you that big body for a reason but if you don't want to that's okay and that started to eat at me and so I joined the stinking football team out of an obedience step, I thought the Lord was calling me to do that. He used the Jedi mind trick. Yeah, the Jedi mind trick. <laughs> it was uncomfortable. I joined, and I didn't want to, and then I started playing, and I was terrible. I was uncoordinated. I was bigger than everybody, and then when I started getting beat, I was totally embarrassed, you know, because everybody had these high expectations. Well, one thing that came to me um, 
out of my childhood. I think in a lot of ways, I think all my brothers and sisters would say this, but I felt like it was my fault. I felt like I had to fix it. There was something that I could do to make it better uh, between mom and dad. I could, I could fix it. I had these dreams of them being back together and being in the house. I, had, I knew that there was a way that I could do it. So from very early age, you present a challenge before me. I'm ready to suit up and go after it. So when people started laughing at me and I started missing the expectation, it wasn't so much, well, I'll show you. It was, oh, no, I can't fail. I can't allow this to happen. I can do something about this. So I hit the weights hard, and I was running extra. I'd done all this, and I eventually was an all-conference, all-state player and got the nod from a college. You alluded to it earlier, and you brought it up again, uh, the divorce, the parents, they, there's a sense in which directly or indirectly uh, you feel like they are pressuring you to choose a side. And it sounds like what you're saying is from the divorce, what stemmed out of that is you wanted to reconcile both sides instead of being more loyal to one side than the other. And that carried on even as you went into football where you're trying to reconcile things together yeah, Would you I think, agree with that? Yeah, I think you're right on. Um, you know, as a child, um, the greatest sense of comfort for a child is the peace that's in the home. Um, and that means that it starts with mama and daddy, and especially with a dad. And uh, when I felt that that was deteriorating, I wanted to do as much as I could to fix that, to get it back right. And the best way to do that wasn't to choose a side, the one that was, you know, easiest to run with. It was to get them get everybody on the same page and I'll give you a perfect example of that is my brothers and sisters that were still in school whenever my dad moved to get away from the strictness of my mom and which was better parenting honestly at the time they went with my dad to Monroe so they chose the easier path but I knew principally that my mom was going to cause me to live a more righteous life because she was going to impose a standard there for me. Um, so I chose to stay with her. Um, and it was difficult and it hurt very badly because I was separated and I knew that this was the final blow. There was no getting this back together. Um, but my brothers and sisters, they just went with the flow as where I tried to choose the one that was most noble and it tore me to pieces. It was the hardest thing to do because it was a realization that I couldn't reconcile it. So how does that work today? How do you deal with that today? Not necessarily the divorce, but the struggle to reconcile things or please both sides or unite things that maybe are torn. How do you handle that as a, a grown male now with, with children? Yeah. The most difficult uh, challenge in my life right now by far is I'm not even 30 yet and I've got five kids I have a full-time job and I'm on the board of a Christian school uh it's just so hard because usually men that are my age do not have that on their plate and so my natural tendencies aren't to reconcile in this moment it's to whine and to complain and to say god my life's so much harder than what it should be. That's my natural tendency, and I give that tendency a lot. Um, but the way that I go about reconciling this is I honestly believe that when I prayed as a teenager, Josh and I, that the Lord would give me wisdom and that I would be able to be a man that the Bible says stands in the gates and and, um, and somebody who is respected and speak when they speak, people listen. I wanted that really badly, and I feel like the Lord's answering that, but it's not a comfortable answer. And so I try to remember that when it comes time to reconcile is, is that this is the path. The, the mountain is, is, the, is the path to being that respectable, uh, diligent person. The shadow proves the sunshine kind of thing. And so this is a difficult time, and the greatest challenge I had coming back to that is raising these kids and with my wife because my wife is relatively young as well to have this many children. And so I'm trying to learn to lead when I can barely hold the helmet on my head. The way that I do it is I constantly deny myself. I constantly say, just literally stop being a baby. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. Stop whining. 
suck it up. You've got it what it takes. Be a man. Now, being a man means being able to do that, to deny yourself, to shut yourself up, to not give in to your pride and not give in to the temptation to whine and bicker because that's not a man. That's a baby. That's a, that's a boy who shaves, and that's not what I want to be. Um, and I'm pretty, pretty animated about that because I have to be that way for myself or else that stupid guy won't listen. <laughs> you said that you've got a lot on your plate for your age, so just so the audience knows, how old are you? I'm 28. 28. Yeah. Going on 29 or just turned 28? Just turned 28. Just turned 28. Okay. Um, one thing, when you told your story and you didn't get this far along, we got derailed, we talk about a lot on your plate, is not only did you go through the uh, process with your nephews, um, you had the extreme tragedy right in front of you, literally. I remember where I was when I got the call. Uh, and so uh, why don't you walk us through what happened that day? Okay, so um, it'll take me just a minute to build there. Um, but uh, when I came to Sterlington High School, um, I didn't have, I wasn't in a relationship per se at the time. But I went to open the office door one day uh, to take something to the office at the high school, and, and there was this just gorgeous redhead walking down the hall, and I was like, bow, chicky, bow, wow, because I'm all about them gingers. And she got to the door, and I opened the door for her, and uh, I was like, oh, man. So eventually I got to know this girl, and I wound up at her house one night with a little uh, youth group party thing, and I, her name was Connie. And she wasn't dating anybody, and man, she seemed so humble, and she was just so beautiful, and just so sweet and soft-spoken. And uh, I walked over to her mom, and I said, uh, Miss Sheila? And she said, yeah. I said, I'm going to marry your daughter. And she goes, well, Will, you can't. And I said, why not? She goes, because we've already got one Will. She's got a younger brother named Will. And I said, well, that's just too bad. He's going to have to move over or something, because I married her. And I did. It was weird, because we weren't even, we didn't even have a relationship at all at that point. Anyway, so um, time went on, and I did marry her, and her dad, to me, even today, was the single greatest man I'd ever met. He was so enthusiastic and filled with energy, and just a servant like you could not imagine. Just would, people say, give shirt off your back. Yeah, he would do that, but my goodness, he would do it with joy in his heart and a grin on his face. Uh, he, he was just the just I, I don't even have words to explain how much I thought of him, and he embodied a lot of things for me that I wasn't and that I wanted to be. So even at the age of sixteen, there was a man that I wanted to be, but I didn't know how to get there. And I could see the pieces and parts of who that man was in people around me, like my grandfather and and my dad, and and especially in Mr. Curtis. He had a lot of what I wanted, and I didn't have it yet. I didn't have the desire, really to be a servant like that, but I wanted to be that kind of man that was respected. So I started watching everything he did, made good friends with him. He and I hung out. We were wonderful friends. Well, on November the 11th in 2012, uh, I came to him. He was at the house on break, and we were literally waiting for the day uh, for my, our second daughter um, to be born. He had just taken vacation so that he would be around for birth and things like that. And I walked over to him. I said, hey, Mr. Curtis, I said, you want to go hunting? And he said, uh, oh, yeah, let's, let me go ask let me go ask Miss Sheila if I, if I can go. And so he got permission. I was out uh, sitting in the passenger seat of the truck waiting on him, and he wasn't coming out. And I was like, what in the world is he doing? So I got out of the truck, and I went inside, and he's standing in there with two paper sacks making sandwiches and putting crackers in the bags. And, we, I mean, it's already like 4 o'clock, so we're not going to get to hunt for like an hour and a half. But – this is who he was. He wanted you to be comfortable. So he rolled the bags down real tight and grabbed his jacket and put it over his arm. And we walked out. When we walked out, I walked around to the passenger side of the truck. And he goes, no, 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 I want you to drive. And I said, I said, well, well, I don't know how to get there. Uh, he said, well, I want you to drive because if, if you drive, you'll remember how to get there. I'll show you how to get there. I said, okay, well, whatever. So this was your first time to ever drive there? Yeah, it was my first time to drive there. I'd been there with him before. But he said, uh, he said I learned a lesson back that if you drive somewhere, then you're more apt to remember it. So this is him. This is how he is. And so I was like, okay, whatever, old man. I get in the passenger seat, and we take off, and he opens up a couple bags of uh, M&Ms, and we're eating M&Ms and riding down the road just talking about stuff. And we were talking about Mila, our daughter that was fixing to be born, and 
he was talking about how excited he was that she was gonna um, get to he was gonna get to be there when she was born and all this kind of stuff and we were just talking like we always do well we got all the way out there he showed me how to get there we get out of the truck and uh, where are we gonna go and I said I'm gonna walk down here and sit here uh, where are you gonna he said I'm gonna walk over here now to give you the lay of the land we're about a, probably a quarter of a mile apart so I'm hunting and it gets close to dark and me and him are texting hadn't seen anything and finally something comes out I'll take a shot at it I, uh, so I walk down there it just starts drizzling rain and I walk down there and I'm looking I can't find anything and all of a sudden there's this light coming from down the end of the road and I was like who in the world there's no way that's Mr. Curtis well, it was him and I think he ran over there just out of excitement just he's just so full of cheer he got there he said, did you get him did you get him I said I think I missed and he goes well let's look so it starts raining a little harder and we're looking around and everything's fine and uh, I said, well, come on, let's go. I believe I missed her. We're going to get wet. And he goes, okay. He said, well, maybe by the time we get back, Connie will be ready to have that baby. I said, maybe so. And we're walking side by side. We take four or five steps, and I shine my light over to the side, and I said, that's where the deer came out at. And he goes, right there? And I said, yeah. And so he turns to his right, which I'm on his left hand side. He turns to his right, and he gets down on all fours in the spot where the deer came out. Now, Mind you, this is him. This is he, He's looking for tracks. He's looking for hair. This is how he is. And so I didn't think anything of it. Um, but I noticed that his light wasn't shining in front of him. It was shining off to the side. And I said, Mr. Curtis? And he didn't respond. I, said, I was like, hmm, that's strange. And so uh, he kind of fell over on one side. And I was like, oh, no, something, you know, something's bad. And so he, he, he went into the fetal position and was just groaning and, and his teeth clenched real hard and his eyes were squint uh, shut real hard and he was just in pain. And I, I, I'm certified in um, CPR and I kind of know what to look for. I thought I did. And uh, I knelt down beside him and I, and I thought that maybe it was he was having a seizure. That's what I thought so. I tried separating his jaw so he didn't bite himself and all this kind of stuff. Well, all I did was just kind of turn him up on his side so that, you know, do all this stuff. And he he finally relaxed. And when he relaxed, he just looked off into the dark. He's looking in my face and he looked around me and he, and he kind of just moaned four times, just, and uh, his eyes started just rolling around. I was like, oh my gosh, I got to get him out of here. Um, and then that was it. He dropped his head over to the side. What in the world? He just, or I thought this, he just had a stroke. It was the only thing I could figure. So I stopped for just a second and I prayed and I was like, Lord, <laughs> you have to call in the Calvary. I don't know what to do. I have no cell phone signal We're in the middle of no man's land. I theoretically don't know where I am. So I grab him, uh, drag him out into the open and check the pulse, check for breathing. No breathing, no pulse, and his eyes, he just got that look, and I heard the clicking gurgle in the back of the throat, which this one thing you learn is that's, that's they're gone. It's a bad deal. So immediately I started doing CPR <clears throat> on him, and I did CPR a few times and uh, sat up, and I looked at my phone. I don't have signal, so I, I did some more compressions and breathing, and I got up, and I kind of ran down the pipeline just sporadically trying to find signal and I finally got a bar and uh, because of Mr. Curtis I met the mayor of the town that's about five miles away met him and made a relationship with him because he works with Mr. Curtis so I called him and he goes hey Will how you doing I said not good you know I told him I told him where I thought I was and all of a sudden out of the clear blue sky it hit me where we were I said, I'm on Highway 817, and he goes, I know where that's at. And the only reason I know what highway we were on is because he made us, he made me drive, and I paid attention to that. Anyway, so he called his son, uh, who's on the fire department, and he came out, and he ran in the woods, and I'm firing off and doing CPR and calling, and it was just a nightmare. I did CPR until I was just completely exhausted. Uh, arms were just dropped by my legs. I couldn't anything well finally before his son before the mayor's son made it i gave up 
I said, that's it. He's gone. He wouldn't want this life after 10 minutes anyway. I'm going to let him go. And I just prayed. And basically, and all honestly, I just asked, Lord, why in the world would you do something like this? Here I am trying to do what's right in life, trying to raise up these two boys. I'm trying to have a family. I'm trying to, you know, all this stuff. And here's the number one influence in my life. And you take him like, what in the world? I don't. I don't have a bearing anymore. I don't have a compass. This this man was my, he was what I had to follow, and he what in the world. So even in that moment, I was being very selfish, um, but I was in selfish in the sense of I wanted to be the best man as a servant, best man as a husband, and he's gone. And here I am any day ready to have another baby. So. Yeah, and just to reset a little bit, you know, I remember when I first met you, um, it would seem like every time I was around you, you'd say, Mr. Curtis said this, Mr. Curtis did this, Mr. Curtis used to do this. Uh, this is obviously before he died. And I was like, dude, this guy always talks about this Mr. Curtis guy. And so when you talk about what kind of an influence he was to the people around you, even I think it was apparent that, you know, he was your, at least from my standpoint, your your biggest role model uh, during that phase of your life and maybe even to today just because of not only did you follow after him you talked about him and you would tell people his stories of the things that he would do and so he falls for lack of a better term just down and, and dead right in front of you um, and you go through this panic um, you try to get someone out there to help you and you're in a bad spot um, your wife is full term, basically. So eleven days later, Mala comes along on what day? Thanksgiving, which happens to be Curtis and Sheila's thirty third, I believe, anniversary. Describe that moment when here we were eleven days before in the hospital up in where were we at Farmerville. Uh-huh. Just crying and hugging and trying to reconcile what had happened and 11 days later you know i remember that night we were talking at the hospital we were all worried about connie going into labor right there at that hospital just because i mean her dad just died and it was just mm-hmm. we're all kind of wigging out trying to figure out what to do you know how to keep her calm how to keep her calm in that moment you know and then 11 days later on thanksgiving day their anniversary the most influential man of your life who had just died you have your child on his wedding anniversary with his wife Mm. what was that like oh i assume everybody hurts and they go through stuff but at that point just emotionally taxed and spent didn't have any more tears to spend there and miss sheila you know she didn't have anything left connie didn't have anything left and she had to deliver a baby okay and she's she's the all natural type so she you know exhausted mentally physically emotionally um, I had dropped like 10 pounds, just couldn't eat, uh, it just, and Miss Sheila's in terrible condition and there is nothing in the world like a newborn baby, nothing like it. So there we are holding the newborn and there's this clash, this, um, amazing, um, just force, uh, between despair and pain and un. And, and just confusion mixed with certainty, hope, uh, and joy. And this clash is just, it's, it's, a, it's hard to explain. It's a comfortable place because one complements the other. The shadow proves the sunshine. Knowing, knowing Mr. Kurtz would have been so excited for this child kind of helps you put to ease the suddenness of his, his passing and the joy that this new life brings and the hope that's before her just assuages a lot of the pain that's there about what was just lost. But, you know, and in, she was born and, and honestly at the hospital, it was Connie, me, Hayes, and Miss Sheila for the long, for several hours, just us. And it was so good for us because I got to say several times that the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, but in the end, blessed be the name of the Lord. And there's, you know, there's a time for death and there's a time for life and there's a winter and then there's a, a blooming and budding spring. And 
you know, and those things define a lot of who Myla is, and especially when we think of how old she is, it takes us back to that time. Um, but yeah, super emotionally traumatic experience. One of the things about our relationship is that um, I'm a little bit more is flamboyant the right word? Uh, What's the right word you would say? Flamboyant's the word. Flamboyant's the word. Um, and so coming into this period, you know, that was the case. And then coming out of this period, that was definitely the case. And I remember over the next four to five months seeing you on a daily basis, and you looked like you were dying. I mean, you looked – I remember telling you, man, you look like you're, you look like you're about to die. And you may not remember me saying that. I'd come in and say, dude, you look like you're about to die right now. You look pale. You look like you hadn't been sleeping because you probably hadn't. Those next four months, how rough were they? It was depression. I mean, clinically, is what it was. Just uh, you got to understand, I couldn't fix this. I couldn't bring him back, and I could not be the man that I wanted to be. Now that's that's trained too. Okay, so I'm sitting here wondering, am I just hanging out at the cross tracks here? You know what in the world is going on? So I was in a state of confusion and just why. What in the world? I've got brothers and sisters that aren't doing anything with their lives, and they appear happy because they get to do what they want. I've got friends who are my age who don't have all these kids and all these burdens yet. Why? why? You know, what in the world? And here I am, a pretty stand-up guy. I'm trying to do what's right, but my mercy, it is just an onslaught. And, yeah, I I was beat up and beat down I couldn't sleep I didn't want to eat uh, just the mental anguish of something on the inside of me is continually trying to reconcile and to fix all this and to make this pain go away while there's these other there's this other machine in me working to keep me down this way because in depression the worst thing about it is at some point you begin to take comfort in the discomfort, you begin to not want to come out. It's it's more comfortable to stay sad. It's more comfortable to stay despondent. And so I'm fighting that, going, no, that's not the truth, Will. you got to fight against that, even though it's not what you want. And so i got, I got like 10, 15 battles going on here. And I'm trying to keep my wife uh, happy. And my wife's trying, she's worried about me. And, oh, man, work, we had a project going on, as you know. And I'm trying, I, I, I'm I'm a fledgling in project management, so I'm working it, trying to, it was just a ton. And I was just spent. I didn't have nothing left. And, um, yeah, it was, it was the roughest time of my life, no doubt, so far. Absolutely. You talk about depression, and that's another thing that separates us, and I don't say separate in a good, bad way, so just the difference between us, is you struggle with that from time to time. Yeah. Whereas me, I'm not necessarily geared that way, and I, and I don't really understand it. I don't. I understand it maybe in very, very small doses, but I don't. I don't understand it because I don't. I don't have to deal with it. Luckily, I'm lucky in that regard. Um, how do you deal with it now? You're several years removed from that. You've obviously not in that deep funk anymore, but it still comes up. It's still a problem from time to time. How do you, just day-to-day, living with that reality that you could slip back into enjoying the depression or enjoying the discomfort? or How, how do you fight that? There's a couple of things. First thing I'll say is that uh, it slips up on you, and it, and it just surprises you. You wake up one morning, and this is how you feel. And it sucks because it's nothing that you did to make that happen. It's not the bad pizza you ate the night before. And it's not because it's overcast outside. It's just because a train's coming through. That's all it is. And um, that's what's so frustrating is because I can't fix that. I can't make that right. But the way that I handle it and the way that I deal with it is just what I told you before. I've got a version of me that goes, you baby, stop it, suck it up. You can't be this way. You have to You have to stick to a set of standards. You have to abide by a set of rules that supersedes you. They are beyond you, and that means you got to be a servant. That means you got to love your wife. That means you got to serve your company. That means you have to do these things, and I do not care how you feel. You're going to do that 
because you want to be the best. You want to be a good man. So just to be candid, screw your feelings and go do what you know is right. And here's one thing. If I've learned anything, if I've learned anything in my 28 years, it started with Mr. Curtis. It really did. And I use it up to this day. And it's you fake it till you make it. So with Curtis, he embodied a type of enthusiasm with Hayes when she was a baby that I didn't have. He'd get down the floor at 50 years old or whatever he was, 57, and crawl around barking like a dog when she wasn't even in the room trying to get her attention, just playing. Now, I'm looking at that going, that silly old man, you know, these are grandparents. But I like that. I mean, that's – and now I think you could attest to it. I, there's cheer in me when the kids are around, when, when kids, period, are around. Absolutely. And it's natural now. I really feel it. I feel – I want to play. I want to bark. I want to crawl. I want to wrestle and tickle. Even when there's, even when it's an adult conversation going on, I catch myself watching a kid walk by, thinking, "I want to go play," you know. And that's because I just started acting the way that I seen his imitation. So you imitate someone long enough, it starts to become a part of you. And so what I have done is I have made a lifestyle of telling myself that you cannot respond to this. You have got to live by a different standard. And what that does is it conditions my mind and it conditions my spirit to say, okay, all right, this is how I feel. Now this is how I'm going to respond. Now you do that enough, it becomes a habit. And through time you become a better and more consistent man, I think. One of the things that at least you're saying, and I'm not sure you're saying it, so I want to get a little clarification here, is you're saying that you put a lot of a lot of onus on yourself to get this done. Is it something that only you can really deal with, or do you have some other people who struggle with depression that you talk to, or how do you how do you balance that? Or is it something that you just got to dig down and really deal with it on a one-to-one basis? How do you handle that? Well, I don't go to any meetings. I never have. Um, I've only been to counseling one time, and it took me about 15 minutes to find out that dude didn't know what he was talking about. The main way that I deal with it is to be just as blunt, forced, trauma, honest as I can. The way that you taught me to manage projects was you always deal with the facts. You don't live up in la-la land and assume things. You deal with what's in front of you. And you call a spade a spade. Whether it hurts the other person's feelings or not, that's what you do. And so with me, that that motivated me in project management to look at things that way. And and this is just one piece of the puzzle, but I kind of hear your voice in my head when I fall or when I feel that way. It's suck it up. Don't 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 just don't be that way. Period. Just don't move on. Don't be that way. That's not me to, to be that way, but it works. And I know that if I do it long enough, I'll become I'll become more that way given what I talked about earlier. And so I hear I hear that in my head and there are other people that I know of that struggle with depression and I watch them handle it wrongly. I watch them drill down deeper into the into the sorrow. They don't pull themselves out. They yeah. They wallow in their own filth. So That's speak. right. They, they, they wallow. It begins out of a, a, a honest sorrow and a strike, you know, of something. And then they dive deeper and it becomes pity. Right. You know? Right. And I watch them do that and it motivates me to not go there. But it also, at the same time, I've never seen that happen and not stuck a hand out to them. Because in a private conversation, I can say, I've been here. Right. Absolutely. Know. So let's go back again. So... Here you are, you had aspirations of going to seminary, uh, you played college football, which would be a highlight for a lot of people, and your two nephews need a house to stay in. You're 22, 23, something like that at this time. You're just getting into the workforce. You weren't hoping to get in the workforce. You are hoping to actually move four hours down the road to go to seminary. And they fall into your lap, and you take them on and over the next couple of years you kind of fight that battle in the meantime you lose your mentor right in front of you you start a new career you give up on your old goals you're struggling with depression so you talk about these trains you're right it's i would say more of a a big hurricane that's just kind of stuck on the shore and it just keeps spinning and beating you and beating you looking back now when you think about the boys and just kind of how they played in that and where they've come, because one of the things I want to say, at least publicly, is how proud I am of you and Connie for 
how y'all have raised them and just how far they've come from when I first met them. Um, how has it been hard to model yourself in front of them and not let the depression or the angst of Kurdistan or the new job or all giving up on your dreams? How has it been a struggle? How have you dealt with the struggle? Uh, that's been really hard. That, that's been the biggest challenge. Now, we talk about trains. <laughs> Um, I've been hit by those without any forewarning. They just come and, and sweep you. Now, that's a, there's a difference between those and challenges. And the challenges, the greatest challenge I face has been, has been them, uh, pr- the greatest project, if you will. Um, and, the, and the first thing that me and Connie knew going into this right off the bat was we are in way over our head as far as wisdom goes. There are people out here that have done this. They know what to look for, they know how to handle this. So just so you know, they had came from a situation that wasn't ideal um, for a child to be raised in, and it had um, it had made it very difficult for them to assimilate into a normal family. Uh, that that being said, um, that being a great challenge, we knew that there were people out there that could give wise counsel to us. So the first thing we did is what we felt like the Bible had told us that we should do, and that's to seek out wisdom. Pray for it, look for it, talk about it, go to the people who you think's wise. And so we do, we spent a lot of time doing that. And I spent a lot of time just coming to grips with, with the whole situation and trying to see it in its proper light because I'm so close to it talking with you. And we spent, I don't know how many hours and hours and hours and hours mulling over the difficulties and what's going on and intricacies and uh, different events and stuff. But my main temptation in all this is to grow in anger and to grow in bitterness so I'm too young for this, and I shouldn't have to be dealing with this. And I talk to myself like this. Hey, you idiot, don't feel this way. Don't act this way. Be a man. So how do you think I'm going to talk to the boys when they're struggling or when they're doing something they shouldn't do? I treat them the same way, and that's not right. That's not, that's not considering their frame. That's not being gentle. And so I'm having to learn that part and know how to pump the brakes with the children, and that's hard to do. Um, it's not hard for me to do with my girls because I'm growing as they grow. Now with the boys, all of a sudden, bam, out of nowhere, we've got two older kids. So just so the audience knows, uh, this is about five years ago. So how old were the boys and how old was Hayes at the time that, that you started to take them in? Okay. Hayes was about one and a half going on two. Caden was right around four years old and Connor was eight or nine, somewhere right in there. So Caden wasn't quite in school yet. Uh, Connor was in elementary. So you went from being the parent of an infant to a parent of a almost ten year old child. That's right. Overnight, I remember having those discussions about, you know, you didn't get to grow into it. You just got stuck with it almost. And I yeah. don't say stuck with it in a bad way. It's just this is what what was going on at the time. Mm-hmm. So now you've had the boys for a few years. You've had to learn at an expedited rate on how to parent older children than what you actually were were given by birth, at least. How's it going today, as far as? that learning curve and, and trying to catch up. Think about for a, for a parent who may say, I'm considering adopting, but I don't have kids. I don't even have the haze to start with. I have nothing. I pick up a seven-year-old after three or four years. What can they expect? What, what's it like to, to deal with that now? Well, um, think about how concrete cures. This has been a, a, con- a moving uh, analogy for us, a curing analogy for us, is that you know, in the younger years, they're very impressionable, and they're gonna they're gonna um, mold a lot to what you what you do with them. The older they get, the more set they become, and then it starts to become a thing of routine for them as they grow older. They need routine. They need to be able to assume what's going to happen next. They need this repeat repetitive life cycle. So you take those couple things in mind, and the best thing I can say is don't go to the state for help as far as um, them trying to help you raise them right and things like this, I would say find someone who you, you love and you trust and that you admire and adore their children and strike that relationship up. And if they are not willing to go that far with you, then go find someone else. But you need those people in your life, whether you have children or not. You need Everybody needs a Curtis in their life. Everybody needs someone that they can look to and uh, drain wisdom off of. And I hope that one day it's everybody's aspiration to be those people. Now we've gotten to the point where I can really show why I wanted you on the show. And that's because we talk about work. So now that people know your personal life, they know what's going on outside of work, 
let's talk about work. You changed jobs to a really a you got a, deg- a degree that lend itself to what we hired you for, but as far as what we do as a core business and the things, it really wasn't what you had planned out. And yet you came in uh, as at least for the position that you came in was pretty much an entry level position. And you now you're a project manager. You manage people. You make decisions. You're involved with strategic uh, thoughts and how the company's trying to move ahead. Um, and you you've done that while having to adopt two boys, deal with the death of uh, of your mentor, um, go through deep deep depression. So let's go back from a work perspective. Um, how did all that look from a work angle? Well, the best place I think to begin is with the divorce. And not to work all the way back to it, but there's this thing of I can fix it. I can make it better. I want to improve. I want to be efficient. I want, and this thing has this thing has um, evolved as I've gotten older. Obviously, efficiency wasn't something I was concerned with when I was a child, but now it is because it that is the natural maturation of doing uh, of reconciling something. You want to reconcile things, but you want to make it. You want to improve on it. You want to make it better. And so when I came to work here, you remember our conversation right off the bat. I said, I don't want to be stuck at this entry-level position forever. If I'm going to work here, I'm going to strive to be more. Well, if I remember the conversation correctly, you said, do you have an office in Dallas? Is actually how I remember the conversation going, because you had your sights on going to Dallas. And I said, well, yeah, we actually had some folks over there. Maybe we can put you over there while you went to seminary. That was actually, from what I remember, you still, that was still at least oh, yeah. somewhat it, it of a was, hope. It was still a hope. But there was also the part of the conversation that I just took in these two boys, and if absolutely. this doesn't happen, I'm not going to sit here. No, and, that's right. You're uh, right. You're right. Okay. Absolutely. So not that there's anything wrong with people who have pigeonholed themselves to doing the same repetitive task through life. We've got to have those people, and they're just as important as anybody else. But for me, if I was going to be here, that's not me. I, I, I've got to press and push and excel and be efficient. And so uh, what that – that just that raw desire was there, but had no canvas to work on. And between you and uh, Justin, and um, y'all gave me the opportunity to to try to do that. You can't reconcile the train wreck in a day. You're not going to make your life better at home in a day. There's no quick fixes. That's one thing I've learned. This is a, this is life, and this is a long journey. And but if I could come to work, and if I can pour out my talents and do what I can to please someone and to make make the product better or to become more efficient or to streamline this, that makes me feel completed as a man. And we were built as men to work, and that means that there is an expected end. And if you can reach that end, there is a built-in gratification process that carries itself out. And that carries me a lot of the time because I cannot get that out of my situations all the time instantly. That's not how life works. So you come into a workplace, and, and where you had come, you'd been working at your house. So now you come into this, not that we're a corporate environment, but a just a, an office with a staff and people. And you get picked on a little bit. And yeah. one of the things that I always noticed was is you didn't quit. You, I mean, we were giving you a hard time, and we wanted to get in all of what we're doing. It wasn't just detrimental. But we were, we were having a good time, me and another guy used to work here. A uh, little bit, a little bit of hazing, if you will. Uh, but, but through that, one of the things I learned about you was you kept doing your job. You kept doing your job. And all, one of the things that you told me when you first came here, and you haven't said in a while, so I'll get your opinion on this, was you operate off a of fear of failure. You were so afraid at the beginning. At least you said that's what you said. Is that I'm so afraid I'm going to fail that it drives me to work really hard. And as you kind of got through different positions of the company. You, you would kind of say that. And I haven't heard you say that in a while. Do you still have the fear of failure? Is that still there? Or do you feel more confident because you were consistent, you showed up every day, you did your job? Did, did you actually grow out of that? Where is that today? A prime example is I remember when I first learned how to ride a bike without training wheels. It's one of my early memories. And it took I was already almost six foot tall. <laughs> now, I was older because I was scared I was going to fall off the bike and hurt myself. It was this leap I had to take. But now, if I go ride the bike today, I don't have a I don't have a reservation in the world because I've got confidence. I know how to do this. I've done it, you know, I've done it before, and that's what happened here. Uh, as you were gracious enough to allow me to start sticking my hand a little deeper down the cookie jar, 
I, my tendency is I really don't want to mess this up. Everything's going okay and I could mess it up. I've messed it up before. Now, whether that's a true statement or not, that's coming from, from life and I've messed things up before and I don't want to mess this up. I don't want to make a mess of things. I want to, I want to just let it rock on if it's doing okay. But through encouragement and through, you're just, um, you know, you're, you're, your attitude, just do it, you know, that, okay, all right, here we go, you know, push me off the cliff and I better fly or die kind of thing. I've grown in confidence in how to do things. Um, I don't really have that fear of failure on this, but with some of our new uh, aspirations and things, it starts to creep in, but it's not so much more in the workplace as it was at the time, just out of confidence. One of the things that separated you the five years that you've been here, um, is um, and we've got a lot of good employees. So I don't want to be disparaging, but you 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 seem to have a real pride in what you do. Um, you you're considerate. Uh, you try to take care of your projects. You try to take care of your clients. You try to work well with uh, the people that are underneath you. If you were talking to someone who is in your position five years ago, they're 22, 23, getting ready to go to a, a job, a job that maybe they don't want to be at, a job that they don't want to do for the next 10 years. They've got other dreams and goals. How did you stay focused to do the right thing day after day, even when it, when you really didn't want to be here? You wanted to be in Dallas at seminary. You didn't want to have those boys. So how, did, how, how would you tell, what would you tell them? That's tough because a lot of it is what's hardwired into you. Um, and into me was a desire to succeed. Now, if that means abroad <laughs> or it means sitting at the, at the house or it means being up here, I want to be a success. I want to do well. Now, that's not monetarily. That's just I've got to have that gratification in myself that I, I'm accomplishing something. I'm moving forward. I'm, I'm being this. But more than that is, and I'm not speaking uh, philosophically, this is really what motivates me most of all, is I want to be a 60-year-old man, gray-headed, sitting in a chair that is well-respected by the people around him because they know who he was. They know what he did. They knew, and then that might not know a specific thing that he did, but they knew that he worked hard and he's diligent. And when he opens his mouth, they listen. And he doesn't open his mouth a whole lot. Uh, and he's someone who's compassionate and who cries with those that are hurting and he rejoices with those that are happy. That's the man I want to be. And you, it's simple. You don't get to be that man by always seeking out what's most beneficial to you. You get to be that man because you put your head down and you work hard and you're diligent and you're honest. That's how you get there. There is no other path. And that's who I want to be. So if that means it's here or there or wherever, that's the recipe. And I've got to follow the recipe and I've got to put in the right ingredients and that means being respectable to a boss that maybe I don't care for. Not that I don't care for you. Only on days at NDY. Exactly. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> Go ahead and get it out there. All right. Do not strike that from the record. <laughs> yeah, leave that in there. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm talking to the 22. Even if you don't like the boss, respect him because that's how you're going to be a man. Not because you, not because of you're going to push against him or anything like that. And if you don't like the job, well, then use the talents that you have to seek out something else but work hard while you're doing it at what you have yeah you know for young guys so i'm just turned 30 in july and you're 28 so we're both relatively young we both relatively have come up in the workforce young um one of the things that's been a struggle for me and i would think for you as well is we got these little things called egos that get in the way i don't have one you don't have okay well we can move on to the next question Sold in the garage still. <laughs> We have egos. We we think we know it all. I know. I think I know it all. Um, I've it's got me in a lot of trouble uh, with my bosses in the past. Um, how do you deal with that when you are accomplishing stuff and you are taking on large burdens and you're and you're doing these things? How do you keep that pride in check? Someone that I know that will almost at at will always confess to something that is he's accused of is you if you're accused of something you typically just take it right then yeah my, my, i guilty of that or sometimes i do this you very rarely fight back when you're accused of something because you know you and you know that you struggle and you know that you're 
god awful sometimes with how you respond. You know, you know all these things about yourself, and the best way to keep your pride and your um, your you know your arrogance level in check is just to be blunt, honest about it. You got it, <laughs> and that's what I try to do with myself. Is when when I'm accused of something wrong, I want to fully accept the reality that they may be right, because the odds are they probably are. Right, and that's humility. Um, and it's hard. It's very hard, it's hard because you have to deny yourself. You have to be willing to make a, make a fool of yourself. You have to be willing to do that. And a real grown man, a man that I want to be one day, is not someone who wants to stand up and put his chest out. I want to be well-respected because I'm humble, because I'm willing to admit to the failures and to the tendencies of fall. So when I look for people who I want to have working and reporting to me directly, um, I look for people who are going to work hard, the people I can trust, and they're people that can do the tasks that I'm not good at or I don't want to do. There are certain things I'm good at. There are certain things I'm not. I'm not good at many things, uh, and I'm bad at a lot of things. Um, so let's go back to that 22 to 23-year-old who's getting into the workforce. They just got their college degree or, or whatever. They're getting ready to look in the workforce. If you were going to interview them, what are the qualities that you're wanting to see? Or if you go into a big company, and you're given a big swath of people that you're in charge of, and you're trying to figure out how you're going to build your team out, what are the characteristics of the people under you that you're saying, okay, this guy has this, this girl has this, this is who I'm going to promote, this is how I'm going to build my structure around me. What are you looking for? I'm a lot like you in that um, there are strengths that I don't have that I need to acquire quickly, uh, that I need to put around myself. So I'm, I'm typically pretty mindful of what those are if you're humble enough to to confess what you're not good at. Um, so if I'm looking at a, a set of young younger people, the one thing I'm looking at right off the bat is enthusiasm. Even enthusiasm over their knowledge. Because if you want to learn and if you want to succeed, we can go a long ways with that. I want them to care about the quality of what they do. I want them to be disappointed in their failures. That's why in an interview process, I'll usually ask them what's in your schooling, if they're just coming out of school or in their past... What's been your greatest failure? And I want to watch and gauge how they answer that question because that's going to say a lot to me about whether they're being honest or whether they really hurt over it or something like that. That's going to tell me a lot about how they're going to handle success and handle failure and how they assess it. As we get ready to wrap up, um, you talked about a lot. You talked about your parents divorcing, um, the struggle that that was, adopting two boys, uh, your mentor dying in front of you giving up on your career path goals, um, not getting to go to the seminary, all these things. And to top it off, you have reoccurring bouts of depression, which doesn't help any of that stuff. How does Will Merritt continue to be what I view as successful in life and in business tomorrow, the next day, the next day? And in turn, what advice would you give to people who may have gone through Hopefully not all of what you've gone through, but one aspect of it. The way that I'm going to continue is I'm keeping the 60-year-old version of me in my head. And I know who I want to be. I know what I want to be like. And I'm going to fight till I'm there. It's that simple, um, honestly. And I want to be more of a success at home with my wife and my kids than I am here at the office. I want to be a great husband and a wonderful father and a good grandfather and I that, that's what I want more than anything and being successful at business and at work here is part of that so that's how I'm going to keep I'm going to keep fighting I'm going to keep that jerk in my head that's mean to me that's a personification of you so that's why I have to I have to keep have to keep you around um I read a lot on how to become more wise and how to keep fighting, and I pray for it. And I, me and my wife, we, we pray through the Proverbs, and we are reading right now some books on marriage. You just keep digging. You just keep pushing. And so that's my goal for moving forward. My advice for someone who has walked through uh, some of the stuff I've walked through or have had emotionally, physically, and just traumatic uh, experiences in their past is you don't let those things, um, you, you fulcrum those things so that they help you, so that they become um, fodder for the cannon, 
not not that they hold you back. They're painful, and they'll always be painful. And I've accepted that, and that's okay. But it's I've said it a few times: the shadow proves the sunshine. You know, it's it's this is always a contrast to what life was, and you always use that to build off of. And there's something there to learn, and there's something there to glean. And here's the deal: if you're a Christian, then God allows these things into your life. He says the refiner's fire. You've heard the example. Whether you're Christian or not, this applies. Is that through going through uh, just difficult challenges and trials in your life, trying times, it's like a silversmith who takes a piece of silver and he rubs on it and it's shiny all of a sudden. But it's not ready until he can see his reflection in it. And so the 60-year-old version of me is rubbing me down right now and he can't see himself yet. And so I, I'm the piece of silver and I'm... I'm I'm working within what what uh, circumstances are in my life. So set a goal of who you want to be when you're 60. Find somebody that's 60 that's like that. Model yourself after them as much as you can. Become their friend. Do what they do, even when it's not comfortable. Fake it till you make it. And throw a little bit of your own ingredients in there as you go through your learning and through through how you work. And don't stop. And just don't quit. Well, Will, thanks for being on the show today, and that $10 I paid you to give me some good pub turned out. Uh, I think I got my money's worth, so appreciate it, and you can get back to work now. Dang it. Well, I hope you enjoyed our interview with Will today. Guy has gone through a lot of unique stuff and has a really fascinating story and is just a good guy to be around. And uh, So hope you enjoyed it. If you could, please subscribe on iTunes and give us a rating and review. We always want to hear honest feedback from our listeners to find previous episodes of up the mountain podcast go to warroommedia.com slash podcast to connect with me visit facebook.com slash ryan worldwide up the mountain podcast was recorded in r square production studios you can find out more about them at r2films.net that's r the number two films.net and the show was edited by greg zeker Until next time, keep climbing.